When the credits start rolling, but the movie keeps haunting you. Before, after. Then it's time to tune in to Dismembering Horror. We'll talk about what worked and also what didn't. We'll dissect every aspect. Maybe someone we shouldn't. He turned out to be a completely unreliable asshole. Take it away, boys. That's right, everyone. Live from Hollywood, California, it's Dismembering Horror. Hello, Tim. Hello, Ryan. How are you? I'm well. I'm excited to talk uh, something that you have an expertise in. (laughs) Sure. Uh, And hello, everyone listening. As she and I just said, this is Dismembering Horror, and we welcome you. Anything else, Tim, before we jump in? Because I feel like today is going to be a big episode for us. No, just very excited to be breathing life into these new microphones. You hear that? They're maiden voyage. Hello. Hopefully capturing any low I have in my voice all the much better. (laughs) Yeah, me too. (laughs) (laughs) Cool. For episode 179, we're in. That's the episode. That's the episode we break in these mics. That's the episode we test the boundaries of how to define horror. (laughs) As if we haven't already tested them. It's true. We have, I think, I think maybe I'm speaking more for me here, but I at least have very liberal definitions where it can be something that one might not consider horror. But if it has like, I don't know, a brutal death in it or something or a murder, it starts to, like Silence of the Lambs is definitely horror for me. Sure. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. Well, but some people, there's just like, it's got to be, I don't know, like, like a. It's a big umbrella. Yeah. I mean, like the one we just watched, uh, I Saw the Devil, I think you could say is not technically a horror film that it's more of a thriller. And those would be the people I so hard disagree with. How can you have a scene with a big centerpiece cannibalism, like, yeah, centerpiece, and not call it it horror? Uh, But for this film, this may be as horror as we get for Marvel. So what better? (laughs) What what better? uh, Who knows what they could be doing for phase five and six and seven and eight, though? Everything's possible with the Marvel cinematic universe especially the marvel cinematic multiverse oh because i haven't actually said it today we are talking about doctor strange in the multiverse of madness aka doctor strange 2 aka iron man 28 also the second (laughs) of madness movie we have done because for episode 69 we're doing fine we did in the mouth of madness and now for 179, still doing fine. We're doing Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness. Wow, what a weird coincidence. It's all connected, Ryan. Yes, it is. In our multiversal theory, which I'm excited <laughs> to, to dissect with you. Yeah, let's do it. Okay, well, to get in the mood even further here, to really get in the mood, we like to venture in with a trailer. So let's do just that. Here we go. Already said it from director. I was gonna say Dr. Sam Raimi. Um, (laughs) I don't know why. PhD in horror. Yeah, from uh, exactly from Mr. Sam Raimi. Sorry, and written by Michael Waldron. Here we go. Dr. Strange 
in the multiverse of madness. Someone once told me that the reality I thought I knew was just one of many. Be careful which path you travel down. Stronger than you have lost their way. You think there will be no consequences? We're in the end game now. I sacrificed everything. And it meant nothing. Oh, strange. What have you done? I never meant for this to happen. You cannot control everything. You brought this on yourself. You break the rules and become a hero. I do it and I become the enemy. All right. So next, our rating per our rating system. Would we tell ourselves to avoid stream, rent, or buy Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness? Well, considering that I pretty much would buy any Marvel film, well, I'm a buy. I also liked the film enough to buy it. So Cool. <laughs> Great. <laughs> Not just because of my allegiances. I... I'm on the relationship level with these films where I just love the idea that I can stream anyone I want to watch. And I think it was, even though it was like upper tier of what I've seen for my enjoyment of the Marvel films, uh, still a rent, or sorry, still stream. Sorry oh, to wow. get too excited. Wow. Wow. I'll give believe a, it. A little context where I'm at, because we like to do kind of in summary <laughs> reviews here and where I'm coming from. Uh, I loved the both of the final Avengers films. Mm-hmm. I thought for me those were what I always wanted from like a quote unquote comic book movie, where you have a large cast of characters and the stakes are as high as ever. Versus kind of before that, it just all felt like I don't know teases or it just all felt like build up since I don't have that connection already to the characters and I'll get into whatever other kind of qualms I might have with the Marvel Marvel movies in general but those two I loved and one of my favorite movie going experiences ever was seeing the first was it the second yeah the first of those two in Japan in like Tokyo (laughs) with a Japanese audience who was like quietly super, super into the movie. Hmm, That's cool. Yeah. So much fun. And I had a great time seeing the second one. So I love those. And I can say, hopefully to your delight, Tim, Mr. Spider-Man here, I loved um, all three of the Spider-Man movies, like something about the, something about Spider-Man tone just connects with a lighthearted tone Mm -hmm. that just really works for the Marvel tone yep. for me. He's a down-on-his-luck eternal optimist. That's Peter Parker in <laughs> sort of a nutshell. That's why he's your favorite? Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, but uh, all that said, stream it. I thought it was cool. I, I, I did neither of those things for this film. I went to see it in IMAX. Oh, you did do IMAX? I nice. sat center, center, <laughs> and just was blasted with sound and imagery at City Walk. It was pretty cool. That's That sounds amazing. I We wanted so badly to go at a specific time just because of the schedule. 
we've picked the smallest theater in uh, the Burbank AMC. No, the the uh, Glendale AMC. And um, I fully intend on going back and seeing it on some crazy screen. Good. You should. You're the fan. Yeah. All right. It was like a conceit. I was like, it's okay. I can go see it on a smaller screen knowing that I'll eventually or very soon go again. It's just a given. You'll love it and you'll love it even more the second yeah, time. Exactly. So if you haven't gathered, Tim is the Marvel fan among us. Tim, I'll try to quiz you just the right of Mount. I'm so curious okay. by worlds and vast uh, lores. I don't know. I'll do so, my best. I never. I only read one short run of of Doctor Strange in my tenure of a comic book reading. So I, I'm not super well versed. Get it in uh, in the Doctor Strange universe multiverse. You know, I just had the thought. I wanted to ask you to then, as you usually do, do our summary for us here because mm-hmm. you would it's tailor made for you. But I wondered if. I should attempt I to think give you should. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I'm so curious to see sort of like what your takeaway summary would be. What is my takeaway summary here? All right. Well, oh, also I was just giving, you know, telling where I'm at Marvel wise. I meant to say I really, really liked uh, WandaVision and watched all of that. Important for this film. Yeah. So I was like excited for her character and that was one of the first yeah with that i actually got really caught up in the big bad final mm. you know finale of that yes. cuz i was so wrapped up in her story and while i really really liked that i loved loki like loki is very cool the aesthetics that were just all encompassing with it and they went places with his character that i didn't think marvel ever had in them to go just as far as three dimensionality and interestingness and depth and all that I think Loki was either written or directed or conceived of, I can't remember which, or maybe all of the above, by um, one of the Rick and Morty uh, writers. So there's a lot of kind of similarity in that tone of jumping from one sort of, you know, universe to another and, and having this interdimensional back and forth, which is fun. Are you speaking of Michael Waldron? Who oh, also that's right. Who wrote this? That's wrote right. This that's film. exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot that that was also the same person. All right. Well, let's see how I do here. So we have Doctor Stephen Strange. I did like the first Doctor Strange movie. Okay, I do too. Quite so a lot. we're coming off of that film and many other films. And what I remember from that first one is the end battle where it was like a, a kaleidoscopic, Escher-esque, repeating time loop mm-hmm. ending thing going on. Yes, it's Doctor Strange battling Dormammu. <laughs> of course. And Dormammu is sort of the bringer of darkness or whatever. And, uh, and he's threatening to take over Earth, or, or really just the, the universe that Earth exists within. So we got Doctor Strange, who I gather has control slash trust issues. <laughs> sure. After he's been sent down a dark path that we saw in the first film from damaging his hands, which for him being a famous and prolific surgeon was not 
was sent him on his whole his whole journey that we find him on here still. And he's friends with another uh, superhero named Wanda Maximov, Scarlet Witch. And he seeks her help knowing she is adept in witchcraft after having been experienced in experiencing a recurring nightmare where he doesn't save a little girl and instead betrays her. And now he's starting to suspect that that is uh, not that dreams in essence are alternate realities of different versions of themselves. Mm. So he meets this girl uh, before he seeks out Scarlet, which I kind of jumped ahead there, or Wanda. He meets this girl who they happen to both be uh, hanging out the city area together when, oh no, he's he's at a wedding of his ex, uh, or his, his, his would-be love of his life had he not been so Dr. Strangey <laughs> and have yes. trust issues or whatever. Uh, he's at that, at that, at that wedding, and he gets a visit from a serious man, uh, Michael uh, Stahl- Stahlberg, <laughs> and <laughs> who I was very excited to see win a interdimensional, one-eyed octopus creature starts attacking the city, and it's especially it's specifically going after the girl from his dream who turns out to be, or her name is, it's not a twist as far as I know, America Chavez, who has uh, her superhero ability, which we have so many superheroes, you know, there's just, if you can name a superpower, someone's going to have it. So she's the one who can harness the power of interdimensional jumping, uh, multiverse jumping, but it's not within her control. It's only when she gets really, really scared. So we gather that's her thing she has to learn and gain control of, so to speak. That's kind of her story. So finally catching up here when Dr. Strange, Steven, seeks out Wanda for her witchy help, knowing that this, uh, this, this business going on with America, something to do with witchiness, she instantly reveals, yo, that was me, buddy. So kind of right place, right time, wrong place, wrong time in a lot of ways. And she reveals that her garden, which uh, her, her, her beautiful um, orchard, orchard, thank you, which I guess is something that Marvel villains tend to do after when they're kind of subsiding in their evilness as they, they harvest <laughs> sure. Um, <laughs> she, uh, she, 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 uh, she wishes that away and says, yo, I'm actually, and then Steven learns that she's been corrupted by an evil book that she found at the end of her show, WandaVision. So while she's coming from a genuine place of just wanting her kids that we can relate to, her actions are being manipulated by uh, her. her it, it's a dark path. It's a dark path of wizardry that she's gone down. So it's not really her, you could say. It's her, but it's not her. She's been corrupted, as I said. Yes. So with the help of 
Benedict Wong as Wong? Is that, wait, is that wrong in the Wikipedia? Nope, is that's Wong, correct. Wong plays Wong, and <laughs> uh, he they, they, they multiverse jump around, and just Dr. Stephen Strange meets another Dr. Strange, and they fight for some reason, <laughs> and they... <laughs> And it all concludes where uh, in a final battle that is won by America revealing to Wanda that her kids that she wants to be with so much are not impressed with her her evilness, which uh, gets her to snap out of it. And they've all saved the day and... Bruce Campbell sells uh, pizza balls. That's right. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and then they all say that Stevens walking happily in his universe when the third eye comes through again. And this is not a, this is some mix between an enlightened third eye and an evil, scary third eye. Which its significance beyond that, I'm not really sure. But he has it and it's weird and spooky at the way end. And then Charlie's Theron shows up and says, let's go to our next adventure. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty much it. Good job. <laughs> Anything I missed you think is important? Um, not really. I mean, not, <laughs> I mean, that, that's basically it. I mean, there's details and stuff, but at, at its core, yeah, in WandaVision, Wanda has created a alternate reality sort of um to to appease the trauma that she went through in losing her the love of her life which was vision. And so she creates this reality where she and vision have had twins and at the end of of Wanda vision effectively she has to come to terms with the fact that that was all just a construct that she had made using her powers and she has to let go of that. But in doing so, she's, she's begun to search through this book called the dark hold, which is a book of spells um, for alternate versions of her children in the multiverse. And the dark hold I think a key element of this story is that the, the Darkhold itself, as you said, corrupts its user the longer they use it and, and cast spells through it. In particular, a, a thing called dreamwalking, which means you can send your consciousness into the body of other people, usually your, yourself, a different version of yourself in a different universe, um, and the more you do that, the more you kind of lose touch with your actual self and become corrupted by the book. So the uh, the reason for the fight between Doctor Strange and another version of himself is that that other version has a copy of the Darkhold in his universe and has been using it and it has corrupted himself. And one of the resulting things from that corruption is... Um, having this third eye i don't remember what that's there's probably a name for it but i don't remember um and so the two doctor stranges fight because our doctor strange needs the dark hold to 
to dream walk into his own corpse that he left on his earth that that America had brought from her earth uh, dimension, universe, whatever, to prove that she's from another universe. Um, so it all works out in the end. But uh, yeah, that's basically it. It all works out, except for Jim from The Office gets spaghettied. He sure does. My goodness. Um, yeah, I mean, the whole Illuminati thing is kind of a, it's kind of a red herring in a way. Thinking, like, people, I think, really expected that to be, like, this, you know, monumental, like, introduction of of things to come. But they, they eschew that. The writers said, no, no, we're just trolling you. Yes and no. These are just one of many multiverse versions That's of them. also true. So it's not like these are the ones. No, not necessarily correct. Yeah. So there you go. Cool. What a romp. <laughs> it is a romp, especially in IMAX. It was very rompish. I bet. Yeah. Well, do you want to talk about why it was so rompish? Yes. I actually have some big questions I'd love to start out with you oh, okay. for our next section here. I can just tackle all of them. All right, then. Here we go. What worked? What worked? What worked for you? What worked for you? It worked like a charm, Smith. What worked? Tim. Ryan. What is the appeal of Marvel for you? And what is the appeal of Marvel movies for you? Um, okay, so at its most simple, the most simple answer to that is that as a kid, this was my entree into um, storytelling, really. And so... I just, I think I was of an era that like benefited from Marvel in particular, kind of having a um, a media rise. Uh, the the Spider Man cartoon was really big when I was a kid. Um, the X Men cartoon came out when I was a little bit older, but still a kid. Um, I was a big you know, I had older, my older brother and his friends were comic book readers. And so I got exposed to all of that. And so part of it is just exposure. Also, just the fact that I connected with it. Characters in Marvel are rooted a little bit more in sort of like their people that gained attributes rather than DC, which is their gods in a lot of respects that are trying to help humanity. Not all DC is like that, but the the kind of the marquee ones, Wonder Woman, Superman, um Aquaman, uh those are all they're you know, they're gods essentially. Granted, there are characters that you know, gained powers, the Flash gained powers, Green Lantern gained powers. Um and so on. Batman doesn't even have powers, so he was the one of DC that I thought was cool. But with Marvel, a lot of their characters also kind of, for me at least, felt like versions of me. Like Peter Parker I related to because he's a teenager that like is kind of awkward and trying to figure out what the hell to do with these abilities. 
Um, the X-Men characters, a lot of them are younger. Um, they're mutants. They're considered different. They're, you know, shunned by society. And like the, those are all relatable concepts to me as a kid growing up. And I think that's why I gravitated towards them. So that's kind of why I like Marvel in general, right? I just related to all of that stuff. And the storytelling, I've always really liked mythology and comic books. Superheroes are just an extension of, you know, mythology. Um, you've got basic good and evil and the challenges of, of what to do in, in uh, circumstances that normal people wouldn't necessarily have to go through, et cetera, et cetera. Pretty basic stuff, right? Why do I like the Marvel movies? I think it's it's uh, having grown up in a time where you imagined all of these things and the possibility of seeing it in live action, but knowing that it was never really going to – well, thinking that it was never really going to happen in the way that you would want it to or at a level that would meet the expectation of your imagination – but then suddenly, you know, we get older and we enter into a, an era of technology where we actually can have the things that happen in these comic books happening in live action. So not just technology-wise, though, but also in the sense of in the sense of they're so successful that you can have sprawling uh, sequels right. and phases, as they call it. Yeah, and and so for me, it, it's it's just the catharsis in a way of of getting this childhood fantasy to exist and like getting to just dive in. Do I think that they are like high art and like the greatest, you know, movies of all time? Not really, but do they fulfill some really like core things for me as a, just a, a kid who likes to watch movies or likes to dive into stories? Absolutely. So it's really that. And just, you know, I think that they're handled in a way that is both um, pleasing from my personal point of view, like my the things that I like, but also are broad enough for a larger audience. So they're they're able to kind of capture, you know, a new generation's interest and and also a appeal to my generation or even older generations i know a lot of people just aren't into it and that's like totally fine like no big deal um i think marvel gets a lot of flack for some reason being quote unquote generic or formulaic and you hear that all the time and i'm like well what's the formula that you guys are talking about because if it's like i don't really get that argument i've never understood what they're talking about um because like if it's origin story formula that's true for any coming of age story right like there's only so many plots out there anyway so some people don't like them i guess that's fine i think it gets undue hate um but all in all i think they're doing what they're set out to do and and i think they're a really fun ride and most of the time pretty successful I did, uh, you know, I'm always trying to think, what's the appeal? What are they even? And I got thinking about this time I realized, I mean, yeah, I always realized, okay, there's something about how kind of like you were saying, and it's an extension of mythology. 
So you could say this is like modern myth in a way. Yeah. Modern mythology in that where it's like, well, of course we aren't going to really believe in like these Norse gods in like the more literal sense, but in a uh, multiverse way of looking at it, you you know, these characters are real for people in a certain sense. You know, like how we talked about before and other things of stories and characters, everything existing in an idea level is equally real in a certain sense. And that's why I think we get so invested in movies and we can laugh and cry and all of the above with these characters. Uh, but then combined with, when I was thinking, I'm like, yeah, is this a horror movie? And I sort of was like, well, yeah. So you have giant tentacle one-eyed monster. You have zombie. Mm-hmm. You have uh, you have demon ghoul poltergeist things, Sam Raimi things. Mm-hmm. You have uh, Wanda turning into J-Horror girl mode. <laughs> yes. And I'm kind of like, so. so I just kind of realized, well, these are more than just the, they, but they also include like the Norse mythology kind of inspirations, Greek mythology mm-hmm. inspirations. They can go sci-fi, Star Wars with the Guardians of the Galaxy realm, Star Trek, all that. So really, it's like the palette that they have to work with, I realize, is just it's all encompassing. Yeah. So it's really just like taking all facets and genres and stories of our reality, everything's game, and just putting it through a lens of what if superheroes existed. Right, exactly. And that's huge, and which is why we have endless and we'll have endless comics and whatnot. Yeah, and I think, that, you know, it all boils down to archetypes that we relate to and sort of a question of, well, the question that always comes up in superheroes, the morality of, like, how do you deal with these seemingly unsolvable challenges? You know, like, in this movie, Doctor Strange has a very basic challenge. Does he sacrifice the one kid who has this power that is being sought after and so that he can prevent the bad guy from getting it? Or does he find a solution where he doesn't have to do that? And that's what makes that sort of the delineation between the good guy and the bad guy. The good guy is always able to find the solution that doesn't compromise their morality. That's true for basically every superhero ever. And how you weave that tale and how you show us the 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 you know the challenge of that through the character is what we find interesting in uh well uh, yeah here last thing i have is sort of a, a question for you but starting off with saying um something that worked for me about this and all that was more that i was saying earlier was more just kind of um what i can't appreciate about it for sure I remember back when these were first starting to come out, I was like, these movies are so successful. They're going to be going on forever. I'm just super curious by what they do when they wrap up this sort of main arc that they're doing now. Are they going to try to like let directors do a little more? Are they going to explore with the multi-genre possibilities a bit? Are they going to sort of you know, let let sort of stylistic flourishes be inspired by the characters be allowed to take over more? 
like like Loki or or whatever. Mm-hmm. So that's always going to be working for me as an interest level, and that is something that was working for me with this one. But I'd be curious. Yeah, I just want to ask you, like, can you distinguish specifically what is working about these phase four slash post endgame Marvel films for you? Um, yes, I think they're doing what you're describing. They're also um le- because we've spent 20 films living in a more grounded version of what if superheroes existed on earth we're we we got a lot of time to get comfortable with that so this new phase is is moving way more into a quote unquote comic accurate depiction of these characters in particular like every phase 4 um show or movie has leaned way more into a the quote unquote comic accurate costuming um and i think that's just that's obviously by design but they are doing what the comic books originally did which is as they gained success they say okay well now we've got them now we can get a little bit more crazy and expand and try new things out i mean they tried eternals out it didn't do great but like it's a pretty out there concept and is a pretty wild movie um you know they're doing moon knight which i think people really didn't think that that was something you could do and have it work because it's it's pretty crazy um but now they they they've got kind of carte blanche they they've proven that you can get away with a big purple bad guy you know what i mean and like and we'll and we'll accept it so now yeah i think they're they're testing the waters of how far they can go and ultimately with this phase i think they're going to go in a direction of similar to how they rounded out um the big arc of the previous 20 films (laughs) they're gonna find a big bad um it's obviously not going to be wanda um it's probably going to be kang the conqueror who's a multi uh, dimensional traveler and all of these things, like you said, are laying breadcrumbs toward that eventuality where we introduce new characters like the Fantastic Four. We know that they're getting introduced. Uh, like the X-Men, they're obviously also getting introduced. And this is sort of the, the this movie is bridging that introduction, right? Like we're, we got to see Professor X. We got to see Reed Richards, Mr. Fantastic. Um, and so I think all of this is leading toward a, a large event again. Uh, I don't know which one it'll be if it's related to a, a, a storyline in the comics, but probably. Um, but yeah, I think they're, they can kind of do whatever they want now. Including what I just find endlessly fascinating in a, in a filmmaking sense and in a thematic sense is this multiverse stuff. Like I right. felt like there was so much kind of hype or or um you know it's it's just talk or rumors about um the three spider-men or whatever the prospect of that happening when the with the multiverse concept introduce that we almost didn't quite I, i i don't know i mean yeah the reaction comes with you know the crowd getting so excited seeing the three peter parkers together but i mean there's something really monumental and interesting about 
combining these different Spider-Men from different franchises, or in the case of, you know, X-Men being a 20th century thing. I mean, you had the old cartoon theme coming in (laughs) to this film when Xavier rolls out. Right. Like, that's like real uh, Ready Player One level stuff going on, which I'm kind of a, a big fan of. The movie gets a lot of hate and I get it. But uh, there's there's just something in the air right now in all sorts of kinds of, yeah, all sorts of films, horror films, and then now the most mainstream you can get films that are just sort of ideas of alternate realities, dimensions are fickle, mm-hmm. uh, all that. And I'm just, yeah, fi- fascinated by all that in a lot of levels. And there are some things in this film that, yeah, really worked in that sense in a literalization of those ideas right. and in a just, yeah, thematic feel sense too, which is cool. Yeah. I mean, basically it's just saying like essentially all bets are off. You can do whatever you want. Yeah. And, and by making this conceit that there is a multiverse where any version of you can exist, then you can introduce that. What the comic books have done in the past in both DC and Marvel is when they feel like things are getting a little stale, they'll have a giant event which like collapses all of the universes in on each other of some, in some form or another. Mm. And and like you know, there's like Secret Wars is a thing that happened in in Marvel a few times. There's a few different Secret Wars runs, and like in one of them, Doctor Doom gets the Infinity Gauntlet, and or a version of Doctor Doom gets the fin- Infinity Gauntlet, and he basically says, I'm going to let all of the universes fight each other, and whoever's left standing will get to live on the single universe that I'll create at the end. Wow. So, it's, so it's a it's, super full reset. It's a more, yeah, it, that's cool, rather than all of reality being threatened in the sense of Avengers Endgame, which is actually just one universe. It really right. is all of reality being threatened. So cool. Yeah, and like in that, at the end of that, that was one of the ways that they bridged characters from different universes and put them all into the same universe eventually, which is something that, you know, maybe they'll do with like, maybe the Marvel films will do something similarly if they're using Kang, who is a multidimensional traveler. Um, You know, maybe he'll have a similar goal or he'll be like there. I mean, they, they kind of introduced this idea. I mean, they did introduce this idea in Loki that, that this guy at the end of time, who is a version of Kang, has said that there needs to be this one sacred timeline, that that's the one that is the only one. And if that is the goal of another Kang, but a more malevolent one, then you could see how he could have a plan to collapse all universes into this one sacred timeline. And if that's the fight, then that's the fight. And we could end up with a, a universe where it is like, you know, I don't know, a bunch of different versions of characters show up and one of them ends up being the 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 prime one, so to speak. Well, this film, though. <laughs> yes, all right. So, so what are we talking about? <laughs> just more on the multiverse for this film and uh, how that all played into working for me with this film. Anything... Yeah, it's like, how do you show those ideas? How do you literalize all that? So just with the design, and that was kind of like set up with the first Doctor Strange, I loved anything that was like that of the idea in the fight scene with reflections being Mm -hmm. representative 
of portals and things that he can access different dimensions. Reflection is this. Yeah. Yeah. All that. And the, the, the crystalline fractal diamond like borders kind of cracking and folding in on each other to represent the sort of uh, uh, multi multiversal dimensionals walls breaking down and that's a that's a specific design to america chavez's character that her power is to be able to break the fabric between multi uh between universes in this star shape and this you know fractured glass kind (laughs) of way that's like her power right she's got the star in her jacket yeah but aside yeah but just as far as like the 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 crystalline-ness of it all and the Mm fractaliness, it felt very appropriate and just like oh yeah that is how that could look in a fun yeah but yet also just in like a marvel superhero fun way my favorite scene might have been as far as just you know, we're always saying, what's the promise of the premise? Pursuing potent possibilities. All the P's, I like to say. Uh, the music notes fight. <laughs> I thought you might like that. I loved it. Um, because, yeah, again, like, what other movie with this idea of... Uh, <laughs> well, it's kind of like, I don't know, I was thinking, like, how when we talked about Mandy, I loved the idea of, you know, when they're all, when he's given them psychedelics and they're all in psychedelics and he's presenting this record as like a mystical object with this power to it. And I think, you know, in a sense, music is that and does do that. And on a multi-dimensional level, like notes on a page translate and mean the same thing as notes that we hear and yeah, it's all, and it's all in, in one big, I don't know, it, but through this lens, it can like, you can visualize it all as one part of big soup mm-hmm. and sort of make those connections. And so to like use those as little fight objects, but then getting to hear them too, right. it's all, yeah, it's all very, as I said, something that felt like you could only do with this premise. And it was just a real like cool extension of all those themes of ideas of what the multiverse means. Yeah, I think that this the, to me that is what makes Doctor Strange the character and the the world that his stories take place in so fun and exciting is that you really do. I mean, part of why I think Jack Kirby was the one of the creators of it, but like it really was a, a an opportunity for the artists to get completely wild with their designs, right? Like create a character that is going to be able to basically do anything through magic and create visuals that that are off just totally psychedelic crazy wherever you want to go with them and like i love that exploration of of design really you can do whatever you want and so it's like oh you want a monster with 50 heads great no problem we can do that because this is the world that dr strange lives in magic allows for all of these things like that conceit is so you know broad and the the designs that you get to explore are endless and so the other side of that is when you when you have something so broad how do you make it still feel like it's 
cohesive in this particular world. And I think that's why I like Doctor Strange so much is that there is this, even though it is so broad, there there's this ability that the artist always had to kind of, I don't know what exactly to call it, but everything feels cohesive. It feels like there's this creepy, like, uh, dark, eerie thing, this aesthetic that goes on with it that I just think is crazy and fun. And every comic book version of Doctor Strange I've read has had that, and the first movie definitely had it, like the sequence of him, uh, the the ancient one sending his his astral projected body through the the multiverse is wild it's like such a great sequence really is like psychedelics for kids in a way yeah where it feels like <laughs> because so much about like yeah what you're talking about i'm trying to yeah yeah think what that is where how dr strange ties into those ideas of like the the darker creepier whatever's of the world it's it's and, edgar Allan poe you know what i mean it's yeah. just got this whole aesthetic to it i don't know gothic gothic monster art well and was was in the, the psychedelic sense i think why that all plugs in to that is you know it's everything about facing slash uh personifying your demons in yeah. a way and like you know making making friends with the devil so to speak all that business which is kind of fun, you know, which is was a really fun part about the ending to see that idea play out uh, visually with Doctor Strange making, uh, uh, getting help with and getting, it's not that like he controls them, he's like he accepts them or whatever, right, right. his demon buddies to like help be an extension of his cape and be that is crazy the zombie coolest guy. thing I think I've ever seen. <laughs> I love that. I cool. could not believe there were so many moments in the movie where I was just like very literally jaw dropping. Like my mouth is just a gape of like, I, I, I am astonished at what I'm seeing right now. And that one in particular, I, I, I just couldn't get over how a cool it looked like from a design point of view, but just as a, like a, thematic thing exactly it's the idea so of it <laughs> goddamn cool well is i mean was i on to something how i was trying to describe that like how would you put it as a thematic thing i think yeah i would kind of combine the what you and i are both saying it is and add one thing it is a psychedelic surrealist gothic monster dream world and i think the dream world aspect actually gets played out in this film as a story as like a plot point but that is the thing that i think is is really supporting this character and historically for dr strange is that it is basically just saying all those weird feelings and images that your brain creates when we're dreaming what if those were real what if we could explore them and like that concept by itself is incredibly exciting to me as, as somebody who repeatedly says how much I like this notion of realms and like crossing over from one to the other. The dream realm is like the quintessential version of that. And so this this movie is taking that as a story device to say that the other universes and the other versions of you 
are actually what we are experiencing when we dream. Little snippets or like tidbits of of those in certain moments. And that as a concept alone is super exciting and cool to me. Well, and what what hit me was how that idea was used to sort of help with um not not, not advice or support or you know you know just when a, a theme comes across and is presented in a certain way that then strikes you on a human level that makes you feel okay like i like something that gets me in like you know horror movies and i'm trying to to write about a lot and like it's why the end of la la land when he like imagines mm-hmm. or they both imagine like the life they could have had together like it just kills me like that kind of thing yes yeah, to me for me it was the only enjoyable part of that movie <laughs> i love la la land you should <laughs> revisit it after i after i tell you how great it is even more um <laughs> but just that like maybe it's i'm just a nostalgic person but i feel like i'm just one of those people that's just so stunted with like possibilities, you know, in a way and like how every, you know, the, that's where multiverse theory comes in. We have infinite branches, you know? So anything that's like, uh, Wong coming in with his advice being like, you know, and, and, and anything that's sort of like, yeah, well, you're, you're supposed to be where you're supposed to be like the, um, the, all you need is love Beatles quote, quote, there's nowhere you can be that isn't where you're meant to be. That even expanded on more by Wong when he's like, yeah, well, you know, I'll think about all the other me's out there. Maybe they're they're happier, but I think like I'm this is this is mine and I'm I'm grateful for for that and at least we have each other along the way kind of thing. Like all those sentiments and how they tied into this multiversal story i thought is i'm so glad they were in there and actually like explored and expanded on well and that that is the main theme of this film right the the two main characters steven and wanda are effectively grappling with the exact same conflict which is if i could have a different life would i choose that like, if I could make the choice, would I live a different life? And the answer is, you can't, <laughs> right? Like, you can want that all you want, but that's not a life. You're, you can't exchange that. And so Wanda takes it to an extreme through her being, you know, kind of the, the, the book, The Darkhold itself, you know, uh, compromises her view of that and she has to be faced with the thing that she thinks she wants and have it reject her for her to snap out of it and that's a really tragic thing right and we all i think we all know what that is like there are times when we fantasize about choices that we made and like how things could have been different if you know this big if and those things are not really the way we should look at life, you know, because you can't go back and you can't, you can only sort of exist in the exact moment that you're in. Like hope is great, but it still never arrives actually. Only, you know, only your, mo- like the moment you're in and the intention you have moving forward is all you can kind of exist 
within. And so this having it even called dream walking is is pretty appropriate, right? Like you're not walking. <laughs> you're it's not you. You're you're dreaming. It's still not reality. It's another reality. Right. And so at the end of the day, where are we? If we dream walk too much, we lose ourselves. Right? That's kind of the 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 movie in 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 a nutshell. And Stephen has to sort of come to terms with that with his relationship with Christine and his relationship with the decisions that he's made in the past that keeps kind of coming back, this decision to give Thanos the time stone and was that the only option he had? And like, in a way, it doesn't matter. It happened. It's over, right? Like, you have to move forward. And like, that's, the whole movie is essentially that. It's a good theme. I got it. Thanks, Tim. <laughs> good to hear. Good to hear. Thanks. Um, I uh, <laughs> Is that kind of on all that? Well, you're talking about Scarlet Witch and her story and yeah, how both their stories play into that idea so well. I just got to say, in general, I loved how this really felt like even more her movie in a way, mm-hmm. even though it was called Doctor Strange. Maybe it's just because I watched the show. Yeah. I love Elizabeth Olsen, but I loved like just how she was. It was like fully her movie. And I loved just the imagery. And oh, yeah, like when I was listing those horror or the, all those those uh, different genres or iconography that can exist in the Marvel movies and was listing the horror ones for, is this a horror movie or whatever? Didn't even mention the whole witchcraft thing and like spells and all that. (laughs) Like I love just having Wanda float with her, with her headpiece, the little ears I love. And like, uh, you know, coming down the hall and like appearing just, uh, when she's off in the sky in the distance, just floating there, like all that. I loved her on her altar throne thing. Um, all that was great. But then in a storytelling sense, I just appreciated so much how it was like, okay, she's revealed towards the beginning. She's the one behind it all, like Scarlet Witch, if that's her, you know, um moniker. Yeah, if that's or that's her uh corrupted self sure, evil side. Yeah. You know, that's her as the bad guy and her bad guy form is, you know, Wanda and Scarlet, which are different in that sense, even though they're one and the same. Um that it just it it stuck to that that there wasn't any like twist or that wasn't a twist later it was like we just had her as the bad guy right and i just think that's infinitely more interesting than having like a big bad thing which is its own sort of nut to crack and how to do that right but uh to have it be an actual you know, I, I don't even know if I saw like the, the Civil War movies, but mm-hmm. it's, it's that idea. It's like we have two characters. They both believe in something so strongly that we can we can sympathize with. And there it is in lies our conflict. So to have it. Yeah, we're one of our one of our people, one of our heroes is uh, and and where she's coming from is the bad guy. I just think that's so infinitely yeah, more interesting. Um to go that direction. I'm glad they just kind of stuck with it and there wasn't a bunch of bad guys and all that, even though you can make that work. But uh, yeah, I liked that simplicity and thought it really worked in this case. Yes. Having a singular bad guy, having them be somebody that we 
care about, it's good. It makes us, you know, engaged and like understand what's going on. It's just not some malevolent bad guy who's like, yeah, I hate the world. Like the fact that her motivation is simply that she is grieving the loss of children that she never really had. That's so tragic. My God. And then just up that little bit, there's an evil book involved. So. Right. Very, very Sam Raimi of them. Yeah. No, so then it's just, okay, that's how she's, that's how we can still sympathize with her. Right. It's not like she's actually like gone crazy in a way that we lose her. Like, come on, Wanda, we know you better than that. It's like, okay, no, you can still, you, you turn her into the bad guy. Right. And that's such a basic thing, right? Like we can all be corrupted by our our own like grief and obsession or desires or whatever, like if we let it go too far. And that's sort of what they're saying with Steven, too. You know, like, if he thinks he's the end-all, be-all of all decisions and all, you know, like, conflicts, how far does that go before he's sort of compromised in and of his, himself? And I think that that question keeps coming up. And he needs to, like Christine says, like, he's always going to be the one holding the scalpel, right? And, like he needs to come to terms with what, whether or not that's has to be the case. And he does. He's like, oh, actually, you know, I don't have to take America's powers and control them myself. I can let her learn to harness them herself. Yeah. That's a big lesson for them. Well, any other just kind of big story things, character things that you wanted to shout out that worked for you? Not really. I mean, the big sort of, I guess, related thing is because you have so many versions of, of each of the main characters, um, just the performances are so awesome to watch. I mean, look, well, like, Elizabeth Olsen's Wanda performance from each of the versions is quite remarkable. I mean, they're, like, <laughs> they're showing up and not just, like, getting a paycheck. Like, she is incredible at the moments of, like, high grief high anger high like just tumultuous you know whatever you want to call it it's it's really remarkable i loved like yeah when someone can just deliver evil like that like i loved the moment so much and in, just in a filmmaking way too it was really interesting where she broke the fourth wall when she yes. what what's the term with it uh dream walks or whatever yeah. when she projects into the wanda who's the mother and, uh, you know, we know it's the the evil one that, that we know that it's uh, Scarlet Witch because the eyes turn red. But we also she she looks to camera briefly. Yeah. As like before she turns all the way to the kids or whatever. And it just gives this look where it just feels like there's something sinister coming from her. It was such a cool moment. Yeah. And this this repeated thing of what would you do to be with your kids? is such a powerful thing, right? Like, we all can relate to wanting to protect somebody we love or, like, be with them or whatever. And so, <laughs> I mean, to me, it's sort of the, it's encapsulated in the fight with the Illuminati, where it's like, we know that, like, she's powerful and, and like, a threat and whatever, and they all seem so sure of themselves and it's so satisfying to see them get get their comeuppance when they're like, pshaw, we don't trust you. We don't believe you. We can handle some. We can hand some, yeah. handle some little girl with some, some magic powers. Uh-uh. No. That scene, I mean, 
beyond the fact that it's it is sort of a uh you know it, it it's it's turning the the fan service sort of idea on its head because people have been clamoring for some of these characters to enter into the MCU for a long time and being like yeah we'll give you that but we're also going to like make it hurt <laughs> Which, no, it's so, so smart because it gives the stakes of like, oh, she's powerful, she's evil, she'll do whatever. I mean, I'm sure the one that everyone talks about that this is so good and horror like is the sealing the guy's mouth so he blows yeah. his own head up or whatever yeah. it was. What mouth is like a just an amazing moment <laughs> to have? But uh, uh, that was I mentioned the notes is my favorite scene, but I think that was my favorite sequence Mm -hmm. just to see her in full like Terminator, witch evil pursuit mode. Yeah. And then also just the location was working for me as like it felt real and not just, you know, blue CG land that a lot of these movies can get lost in for me. Totally. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And then and then just to have those stakes immediately there were. I, I mean, I didn't know who they were, but the audience was like freaking out for this one guy and then he sure. gets killed right away. It was cool. I I also appreciate that she dispatches the men first, like pretty easily, mm-hmm. and then actually has to have a bit of a fight with the women. Like that was a nice, you know, just a nice touch to to showcase <laughs> the women instead of, you know, instead of having the men be the all powerful sort of end and bad guy, you know, challenges. Um, I think we're kind of, you know, one of the big, well, I mean, we're a horror podcast, right? Like, the the use of horror tropes throughout the film in a way that doesn't feel, I don't know, it never felt, I don't know what the word would be, contrived, I guess. It felt Sam Raimi-y in, like, the perfect amount while still feeling like it was in this universe appropriately well hopefully it felt dr strange e right but i mean there are definitely moments where i'm like that's sam like yeah. that is quintessential sam raimi filmmaking right there well the mirror the the reflection sequence is so fun and like so like every horror film that sam raimi has made has ha- has that like one scene that has all the like super hard kind of sped up push-ins on a thing that's like the camera is motivated by like getting in the face of everything. Right. Uh, when I was watching it, we're just talking about Sam Raimi touches. Uh, since it was all still under the guise of the wrappings of a Marvel thing, it only took, it took me kind of after the fact to be like, like everything I just listed in the horror sense. We had zombies and mm-hmm. J horror girl, like, uh, oh yeah, that must have actually been pretty jarring for people who just are Marvel fans watching this. Like that, that did, put a a, a palette a horror palette yeah. and sheen over it all but when i was watching it just a little ramy touch the one that stood out that i really noticed was which i loved the whole uh the the shadow ghoul goblins <laughs> yeah. at the end and just the way they talked and sounded straight out of drag me to hell or yep, army exactly. of darkness or something like that even though i loved there was like a shot where it was just one of its arms coming out at, I guess, Rachel McAdams or someone, but it like looked more like a practical arm yeah. or maybe it's sometimes just like CG, you know, it looks better in close up, you mm-hmm, see more mm-hmm. texture, but uh, yeah, I loved that. But it was when they, um, 
you had the reverse shots that were like close up on Rachel McAdams. That was almost like POV of the demons coming right on her yes. and attacking her. Like yes. that I loved. And I was like, cool. He did get in some, uh, that's a Raimi touch for sure through and through. Yeah, no doubt. And like, you know, sort of what I'm saying also is in the, in the trope sort of realm, you have these very classic horror uh stylings so for example we've seen this in many many movies you know the the whatever the the final girls or whoever are being chased through an area and then they they come to a dead end because somebody else is coming down the hallway and you see the monster's shadow approaching and mm-hmm. then it turns out to just be dr strange like running up like the use of that misdirect i guess if you will is such an old trope but like it's just even the the hand the zombie hand coming out of the ground like that's that is quintessential zombie imagery right and using all of those things in a tongue-in-cheek way that still feels like it's a part of this world and doesn't feel contrived i think is one of the bigger successes of the movie itself um because it is it is a horror film even though kevin feige wants to say that it's not like Give me a break, dude. It, still, it completely leans in on that. But it's still, it's a horror film in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, which is an interesting, weird thing to sort of combine, I guess. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> trying to think other, whether it was Raimi-esque or not, which I guess it was. I'm just trying, trying to think of other scenes, moments I liked. I loved there was like a montage scene where what were they? They were describing, I guess it was like exposition about Scarlet Witch where it was like you had Dr. Strange's face on one side of the screen and America's face on the other side of the screen. And like I had all these sort of cross dissolves and montaginess going on of like the the candle circles and all that stuff i i I really liked that sequence too yeah that really felt like we were stepping out of the the kind of grounded nature of the previous marvel films and actually expanding the stylistic filmmaking choices yeah and there's cool stuff like that throughout which i thought was not only like a Raimi strength thing, but also just in ter- terms of the multiverseness. Like there was right. just some transition to Wong in close up where it was like the background of his shot was like melded interestingly from a previous shot in a yeah. way. Just th- that stuff throughout was cool and on point and on theme for me. I mean, I, I, I hesitate to just keep going down like a litany of, things that i thought were cool because thought a lot was cool yeah i mean basically <laughs> thought everything was cool well uh last uh i guess last like moment that i had because that would be all my moments i had down i loved professor x finding wanda in her cave thing world. very cool very x-men i mean that is like from a you know i read a lot of x-men this inside the mind scape thing that professor x does is is like that's like <laughs> uh artistically that's the the place that you go with x-men 
comic books. Mm, it's the void. Right. I was trying to think of like, where does this look so familiar visually? And it was from the Matrix, right. where before the Matrix is booted up fully. Yeah, it's, it's, just the, white it's the mindscape or whatever that yeah. a lot of the battles that Professor X is in mm. take place because that's where he's powerful, right? Like in the mind of the other person. That's, that is his mutant power. And so like getting to see that visually was really cool. And, and they, they did a good job with it. Yeah, and it's a powerful visual. It's what kind of, I don't know, being always feeling alone or addiction or wh whatever it may be, just to visualize that of like trapped in a cave you can barely crawl out of. Yeah, I've had that dream, mm. right? Like where you're just like, you can't squeeze through the hole. Mm -hmm. It's so scary. It's kind of loops back around to maybe what we we're already kind of wrapping up about um, characters and character conflict and all that. But I just wanted to say I loved how clear it started out at the beginning of kind of who Dr. Strange love and what the story might be. Dr. Strange loves <laughs> yeah, <Dr>. Strange <laughs> love. Yes. So funny. Um, what his character and what his story would be where it was just like, boom, opening scene, saving girl from monster, whatever, whatever. And there's just that clear moment of she's like, but we're friends. How could you kill me? And then yep. off to he wakes up. I'm like, great. Know what it's all going to be about. But <laughs> yeah. What I more wanted to say further was just in terms of the um, the double meaning, you could say, of the title of madness mm, of mm -hmm. uh it was just what we already touched on but i just wanted to make the connection as far as like characters being left to their own devices going mad uh is 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 what what that is of, of what happens with wanda and it's what um it feels like when you're you're gone off the track and thinking about all those things that I said Wong like, brings him back to Earth with, uh, of all the different possibilities. This, and the idea that you have infinite options in the world. You do go mad thinking about all that. Right. So it was, it was, it was, it was, I like the title for that. <laughs> yeah, and there's a couple nice sort of touches of, of the, the Wanda who has the kids. Or is it, is it America who says to, to Scarlet Witch, like know that they'll be loved mm -hmm. that that should be enough anything else or forever hold your peace i mean lots else but no i Great. think we can move on <laughs> all right then for our next section here what did not work it's not ready yet seems to work okay no something important's missing <laughs> all right i was trying to represent the camp of uh when you were saying earlier like people complain about them like they're generic blah 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 whatever and in all the instances you pointed out like i agreed with you it's like yeah like a character arc journey like then you do that like it's classic you you do it but it's more in lines with like the filmmaking maybe it's just like makes me feel old or something but like <laughs> like i've just i haven't adapted as much to like being able to stay engaged with what's happening on screen or the action hmm. but when it's just like that opening scene or like the right the, the second opening scene i guess like the where uh the the, the tentacle monster like i just don't like track any of that action like mm, it just kind of mm -hmm. 
loses me. It just feels like you're just watching like these this sort of CG bloobiness right. camera floats anywhere. I don't know. Right, I, right. I just can't try. And um, I used this is it's kind of how I put it uh, with critiquing the um, the new Star Wars films too. But I think as evidence for what I'm saying in that sense, you can point to the music like into each their own. This is my own subjective, whatever I heard like people saying, Oh, Danny Elfman, the score was great. Great, great. Da, 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 da. I'm like, yeah, I mean, it was cool, but it's not like there's, there's except for like, like an end game, you have the, an Avengers theme that like swells up when they all come in to save the day or one of them grabs the hammer, like whatever it is like that. You actually have that theme moment, which is for me and like so many modern films like this, it just, they just don't exist. Like the themes, Imperial March coming in, you know, the, Mm -hmm. the Luke's Luke's theme, you know, looking out at the twin sons, like movies, they just don't like, they can't, I don't know, like, have that reverence or plug into the amount of like depth that should be there or like really treat a moment for all it could or should be. I don't know. And that just plays out in the music for me where it's like, there's no, there's, there's never any recognizable themes or theme (laughs) going on, which apparently there is like, they, like, uh, I don't know, people talking about it. Oh yeah. We had all these themes for this moment and these characters, blah, blah, blah. But I don't register them because there's never, a moment to kind of be with it, which is why like I highlighted, I liked the sequence where Wanda's pursuing them all. Cause it was like all in a practical set location that mm. I could follow yes. action wise versus as I already said, which is kind of par for the course for most of these films. I just, I just tune out. It's all just loud sound. And that's why it makes me feel old when I'm watching. I sure. just can't follow it. I completely agree, actually, on the music front. I was disappointed that the there is a Doctor Strange theme from right. the other movie and that that is recurring in other times when he's seen in other movies. Um, and I love that theme. It's on like a harpsichord or something, and it's very specific. And that is not in this movie. Or if it is, it's it's completely like extrapolated out into a, a like more mild version of it or something. But do you see what I'm saying? How that's, I don't think that's indicative of the scoring job, but rather, I mean, what is a movie going to score, but what they're the, the movie that exists to score. Like, I think if the movie had sort of, I don't know, dealt with these moments, I don't know. I think if the moments were there, the music would find those and bring mm, them out and support those. When rather all the music's doing, I think because of the action is just kind of like, it just all, it, it follows it and it sort of tells how you're supposed to be feeling in a way music should. But I don't know. It just speaks to like something about the action. It's just like a faucet that's just on. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. I mean, there's that um, every frame of painting, there's a um, a video essay that he he speak specifically his name was tom tommy something i remember um check out every frame painting it's great um youtube channel from back in the day but there's one episode of that where he speaks about how marvel doesn't really have recognizable scores um and he goes around and and like asks people he's like oh what's the harry potter theme and everybody can like grab it right away 
um, what's the Spider-Man theme, like the original? Everybody can grab it. What's what's like the Batman one? And and so there's this recognizable like theme score sort of world that exists. And John Williams is sort of one of the premier people who is very good at that. But for some reason, well, the reason being that Marvel has been known to use a lot of temp music before they hand it off to their um, composers. And what that does is it kind of eliminates the ability to create your own theme and like actually like hone in on a theme because you're just copying essentially the tonality, the generic tonality that you've been handed already that the film has been cut to. And that maybe is changing. I don't know. But in this movie, it felt more akin to that style of things and way less of a Danny Elfman score. Like I, I wondered if it was Danny Elfman while it was going on. Same here, yeah. But I didn't feel like it was quintessentially and in any way. I don't think that's Danny Elfman. I, and right. Same with like John Williams scored all of the sequel trilogy. Mm-hmm. But it's not like I can like I I know Yoda's theme because that moment where Yoda's you know passing away sure. in Return of the Jedi and his theme is swelling like you I don't know it's a moment it's a moment but there's like yeah. no moments in these movies it feels like a lot of the time I don't know yeah it's an interesting I'm not sure what the causality is if it is what you're saying this like lack of the moment leading the composition or if it's a you know a more generic just process issue i can think of like i don't know how the music played into it but there are like moments in loki that i remember that felt like moments Mm -hmm. (laughs) so (laughs) i think it's uh largely on character but I don't know. It's also what I kind of gather, and this is definitely true for the Star Wars sequels, is it feels like so much of what Disney does is it's about (laughs) pandemic has been the only thing to 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 sort of stop the train at all or to delay the train. Mm -hmm. A screenwriter, Michael Arndt, saying, hey, I need a year to develop this first Star Wars movie or trilogy to, you know, before, you know, just to to do the script. And Disney being like, sorry, we already have the release date set. Yeah, that's a huge problem. Which is essentially for the investors, for that, you know, all the the evil side of corporatism, whatever, whatever. (laughs) The rampant train is the the runaway train. It's the metaphor I use to describe so many woes of the world. But that's the sense I get where like, Ramey in an interview was saying, um, as far as the movie is concerned, he was grateful for the pandemic for giving them more time to figure some things out with it. But it sounded like just that gave me the sense of like never, if that's your approach, hitting deadlines, which can be good and motivating, it should never outweigh the like getting something the best it could be, which I feel like. It's just um, a symptom of all these movies. You can see it play out because they are... Some heart makes it in there and the the love of the characters, you know, that's, I think, where the heart comes through for a lot of people just because they already, like, love the characters. But, I don't know, for for making those... I think it's that the thing that Scorsese was trying to define when he, you know, parsing words. I kind of hate the debate for that reason, cinema or not, whatever. But I think (laughs) that's something that he's getting at. 
for me, or at least that's how I try to explain it to Wei is when a motivation behind it goes a little too far with having to hit a release date versus making something the best it could be. Yeah, I mean, if you're going to define cinema as um, filmmaking for the sake of the film versus filmmaking for the sake of the business, I think then sure <laughs> his argument holds <laughs> water, right? Like, I think that the business machine now, especially with companies like Marvel and, and Disney and, you know, these giant things that are all based on revenue, not that you don't want your movie to make money, but like, it's, I think, very easy to fall into it's all just bean counting and like deadline based on projection of some whatever formula that they have. Maybe that's what people mean when they say it's formulaic. Mm. I don't know. Probably not, but maybe that's more accurate that the yeah. formula is the mach- the business machine. It's probably an aspect of what they actually mean. Yeah, I don't know. So that would actually make more sense to me because every time I hear it, I'm like, what? Right. So, yeah, I agree. I think it does hinder things. Having said that, in spite of the, the that business machine, this movie is really enjoyable. So, you know, at least Sam and the powers that be were able to allow that or get to this right, point. It's just the thing. Like, I absolutely believe the filmmakers are trying their best and aren't cynics and genuinely love the properties and all that. So then I think you do have that's when stuff works and can work yeah do you have any other did not works um yeah the i said i liked the madness of the title in the sense of uh in the character sense going mad in your head or whatever Mm -hmm. but in the sense of the title dr strange in the multiverse of madness it's kind of reminded me of when a friend who's a listener we were talking about the first the new Harry Potter's movie was like, there was no fantastic beast and where to find them. Like it promised a different movie, you know? Sure. Like this, you had the scene that was them falling through these multiverses Mm -hmm. and then just ending up in one of them. And then that was it for the multiverse of madness premise in that sense of the word for me. Yeah. Like, Hearing you talk about it earlier and how the body jumping idea like worked thematically and all that, that was great. And I thought the characters, as far as just, you know, uh, you're, you're keeping track of and handling like all these different character arcs going on, those all came together and worked for me well. But in the sense of the promise of the premise of the title, <laughs> it did not live up to me. And and the moment earlier, like when you have that kind of setup of them falling through multi-dimensions. Um, and then I thought was so interesting, you know, what I already mentioned I liked was Professor X finding Wanda in her cave bunker thing. Like that was all for me set up that never was paid off, mm. it felt like. Okay, that's fair. I, I don't disagree. I think, you know, if you're going to call it what it's called, maybe you spend a little more time in some of those other universes. Just have that concept come back in the end, I feel like, for a big panel. Like, I know it's, it's right, easier right. said than done. And I know I'll, I'll get to in things of note, or maybe I'll, I'll just mention it now. Um, 
Benedict Cumberbatch says Doctor Strange 2's ending was, quote, up in the air when filming started and that it took some time for the team to decide on the ending, which would tie, quote, together everyone's journeys through this film. So agreed it did well tying together all the journeys, but not all the ideas that were there. Yeah, I'm really curious to see the other multiversal movie that's out right now and see how they handle this, right? The everything everywhere all at once. As far as what I'm getting at. You've seen it, right? Yeah, I think okay. they handled it much better. <laughs> yeah, and so, you know, it is, it, it just depends on what your goal is with the film ultimately and what the constraints are in particular with Marvel movies. And maybe one of the reasons that Scott Derrickson left the project in the first place, because he did the first Doctor Strange and then at some point through the uh, pre-production of this one, ended up leaving the project on because of um, creative differences. And it could, maybe it was that, maybe it was something in, in the realm of that, that he wanted to go in a more wild direction, multiversally. Maybe. Well, that's all pretty things of note. So should it we? Is. I have one oh. other thing that did not work. And it's very specific. The character of America Chavez twice in this movie when things are like coming to a head, just stands there doing nothing. That's okay if we are given a reason why she would be sort of frozen in that moment, but we're not. And it really hurts those two moments. The, one, the first one is in the opening scene in the Doctor Strange's dream when she's they get to the the other book, the 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 antithesis book of the Darkhold, and they're standing there in front of it, and Doctor Strange is like getting stabbed by the ribbon monster, and she she just stands there. I mean, she stands there for a long time, like the whole scene, and doesn't do anything. Like do something or give us a reason why you're not doing anything. And then it comes back and happens again in the, um, the reflection sequence where she's behind Dr. Strange and she just stands, or maybe it's behind Wong. I can't remember, but she just stands there. And it's like, we know that she doesn't know how to use her powers, but like even just a normal person, a human wouldn't just stand there. It felt strange. Like they didn't know what to do and they felt confined somehow i guess like the what i think would be true to like uh she's like a young teenager or whatever so but we need to we need to be fed that just some morsel to suggest that i I could imagine the movie not wanting to like show her like be disempowered in a way even though she shouldn't be like at the level of being able to engage in these crazy superhero fights like I could get it just being them not wanting to show her like hide or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I get it, but I, I just think that you could solve that with s- any number of very small, like un, you know, non major things. You could have her, somebody like Dr. Strange just be like, like, get out of here, use your power and uh, whatever, anything. And she can just, you could just see her frozen and go, oh, she's frozen. Yeah. But we don't even get that. No, we that, just, she just stands there. That's what I'm saying. I, <laughs> I agree. I think we should just show her frozen or whatever. Yeah, I mean, no, she's like casually standing yeah. there. 
she was set up she was terrified of a bee is what set her up on which i get as a kid sure but i don't know it, it, i mean that i guess could have been more a character thing. i mean yeah. her whole thing is being scared in a certain sense but i could get not wanting to show that and then just now it's just sort of at an awkward in between where they don't really acknowledge it one way or the other yeah i think her character all in all was not used quite well enough um she feels a, what's that term there's a term about it's like refrigerator or something like that is did you know oh, damn she it's a term that that describes in particular female characters being used just as like a plot device to be either like saved or trapped or like that that it's for male characters to to as a tool to move the plot forward and unfortunately i think that's the the, the only big failing of this movie from a story point of view is that her character feels like it's just being used in that way a lot of the time she's still fun overall like totally performance yeah totally but i think you could have done a little more with her fleshed her out a little bit more all right we'll see for the (laughs) america star um, what's her name america america chavez movie uh sure she'll she'll be she'll be raring to go by then right all right now we can move on to our next and final big section here things of note things of note (laughs) this should be interesting All right, just, I'm just trying to make sense of what you may know about Marvel lore and stuff here. I found it fascinating that the demon ghost things, they had a rule that you are not allowed to possess a dead body. <laughs> like, whose rule is that? Why do they care about that? Tim, what's going on there? Uh, well, there is seemingly an arbitrary set of rules that is somewhat agreed upon within the sorcerer community that's like written in all these ancient books it's sort of what the first movie is predicated on is that there are pages in ancient books that are sort of the forbidden spells because there's an agreement with whoever i don't know who it is of like things that are acceptable and not acceptable so the ancient one in the first movie breaks this sort of like unwritten code or maybe it is written and uses quote unquote dark energy to live for a really long time um and that's kind of the main hinge of that movie is that she's by doing so being a hypocrite when trying to stop um Cassilius from using pages from a, an ancient book to to summon Dormammu um so I think it's kind of just this like vague, arbitrary, overarching conceit. <laughs> you know that there's like within the mystic realms, there's sort of like some sort of agreed upon stuff. And these are protectors of that. Right. I mean, maybe that's what it is, is that the that all of the realms of the universe or universes operate within some kind of agreement like that the mystic protectors have said hey you know in order to keep things less chaotic let's just not do this or that or the other thing 
I just found that interesting. Yeah, those totally. guys being I thought the same thing. I was like, oh yeah, yeah, you're, you're the enforcers of that. That's yeah, cool. they're like, who's your boss? Strict rules and who's the boss? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, some more on the multiverse and all that. I wanted to get into. So, multiverse theory, as I understand it, is it's. Yes, you can lead to how it's visualized in this film and in everywhere, everything, everyone, all at once. What the hell that movie's called? Um, <laughs> everything, everywhere, all at once. Uh, but like really what it, it means or my understanding of it is, yes, you can have all those crazy different realities. But in addition to all those where it's like, oh, this is the reality where you know, Tim is an evil warlord or whatever, like that exists. But in between our reality, our reality and that one, the amount of realities you have is so infinitesimal that our minds can't even begin to grasp it. Like, because in multiverse theory, like that, you know, your, your pants you're wearing, you would have it so that strand like a one little microscopic bit of that strand is a different color. Sure. And then two microscopic <laughs> brands of it are a different color. And then you have infinite amount of colors within that. Then you have the thickness, the material it's made out of. And my idea of multiverse theory is that like literally mm-hmm. everything, every possibility, and that you think about every pant, every uh, person in the world, like our brains just can't fathom that sure. kind of it's it's an even more infinite feeling infinite than just the universe as a whole but you know and at least to me you know it's just like so beyond the beyond the idea of reality yeah operating on this inward outward level but it uh it clicks and makes sense to me too that just if everything on its most baseline reality is like uh an I- I- idea comes from some really deep wavelength place like and we're just all projections of that the multitudinous of all that so uh i think that i just want to see that uh this is again this is not what didn't work um things of note but i'd just be curious to see that visualized somehow Mm -hmm. more and almost you know wondered if that's kind of what i was expecting from the ending where it's sort of like you have yeah, like this movie, it's always like, oh, this is the cartoon universe and this is the, you know, that. But it's it's really so much infinite. You'd also have an infinite amount of cartoon universes where those are sure. all in shade, different, the infinite amount of shades and sizes and transitionary between real, uh, uh, you know, um, not cartoon and cartoon. Mm-hmm. Like it's just. Well, you could be paint in one, right? Like yeah. that, that's one of them. Yeah. I, I would. For me to make it make sense, because I agree with what you're saying, if it's infinite, then there are, you know, there's so many versions that are are nominally different, like imperceptibly different. Yeah, that's what I'm getting at. Right. So the way I would look at it just to make my brain go, oh, okay, well, I can get behind that is that every if you drop a stone into a pond, there are a potential infinite number of ripples if the pond is infinitely big. And the difference between the ripple, the first ripple, and which which grows into an infinitely large ripple, and the 
400th ripple, there's distance between them. But the 400 and 401st, there's virtually no distance between them. They're the infinite similar versions, the ones closer to each other. But on a long enough or big enough pond, you have a lot of space between certain ripples that are different in and of themselves. So you can, for me, I can get behind the idea that, yeah, or, you know, if it's a record, you know, there's, there's the groove that's at the beginning and the groove at the end, and those are very different but they're on the same record, right? So that's my conceptual way of being like, sure, yeah, like moment to moment on the record is, you know, very close to each other. No, that's what what I'm saying. I wonder if there'd be a cool way to visualize where, okay, like we know the movie needs to get to this reality where pizza balls exist. Right. And that's kind of it or whatever. And there's lots of nice greenery, greenery around. So I wonder if there's a way, if that's like the mo- where the movie has to get, like you show kind of like the transitionariness of the straight line between our reality and that one that like slowly yeah. gets there. I just see something about like an echoing effect or like mm-hmm. infinitely you know, being reflected in infinite directions around you. Something yeah. something like that I think would be cool to get that uh, idea across. Agreed. Agreed. Like a house of mirrors, but like a really wild one. A multiversal one. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then my question for you in a Marvel sense is how are you, how does one reconcile and are they, how are they same and different, this multiverse theory set up in these in these movies and then you kind of already got out of it but in loki you have the multiple timelines i know is a timeline different from a multiverse with each of the infinite multiverses that exist does each one of those have infinite timelines in loki was the idea that there is there's one holy timeline and they they eliminate every other timeline i'm forgetting Anyway, what's a timeline and what's a multiverse? And how do they exist together in this sense? That is a good question. I'm not sure that they know the answer to that. So I, I maybe the suggestion. Oh, man, I don't know. I wonder if the suggestion isn't that every branch off of the sacred timeline is another multiverse. I think that's the suggestion in Loki. And that, that, and that Kang or this, he who lives at the end of time, whatever he's called, that he's trying to prune back all of those things. But I think that in and of itself is a red herring that he's using, he's using that excuse for a different means. And that that is a it just a is a small fraction of a bigger multiverse. Yeah, I because I, <laughs> I think you have to reduce it to an individual level anyway for storytelling's sake. Yeah. So that that would be my take that that this plot line of this guy creating the time variance authority. And pruning other timelines for the sake of this sacred timeline, that that is just a singular, like, uh, 
thing that's happening to an individual in one here's in in, in our universe okay i i here's maybe what you're saying i was i don't know if i quite <laughs> followed you but oh, god maybe it's my own way to put it is on a multiversal level you have the this is all just an example of like yeah how it's so hard to wrap around something so infinitesimal but let's say we have the arbitrary side of all the multiverses things that are arbitrarily different like you have the tim with um a thousand hairs on your arm and then you have the tim with 999 hairs on the arm right. all the way to one that's hairless and then within that all mm. ones that are different colors and lengths sure. right yes infinite amount of those that's what i was saying earlier but then those the multiple timelines yes they are also branches of a multiverse because they are just other possibilities but they stem from uh sort of choices or directions that could be different from one so right you have the 1000 1000 arm hair on armed tim the 999 hair on arm Tim. And within those, you have an infinite amount of Tims that just on that arm have like different colors and different lengths of hair, right? Yes. And then each one of those Tims at any, and each one of those infinitesimal Tims could have made a choice to Correct. eat at Arby's or Green Leaves one day, right? Mm hmm. And then, so that's then where the realities branch out multi uh, or uh, multi time line wise. Right. And those are also multiverses. So, well, they are. Timelines are just another way multiverse manifests in an infinitesimal way where it's choice based versus arbitrarily yeah. based. If it's infinite, then both can exist infinitely. Yeah. So, so we're both right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but this particular Kang is doing one particular thing in one particular universe. Okay. Wait, what? <laughs> So in Loki, I mean. Okay. So when you're moving from within moments on a timeline, you could argue, I guess, that you're also moving within multiverses. Yes. Yes. Which is really confusing. Well, and I that's what I was <laughs> I think my uh my hair on your arms example was a way to try to right. visualize that. <laughs> Um, Stop looking at my arms. They're just right there. <laughs> okay. Uh, any more like behind the scenes making of things you found interesting? I don't really go down that path too much. I tend to wait till like the, you know, the release, the Blu-ray with all the special features and all that stuff. So I, I haven't really dove in into any of that. Well, I did best I oh, could with <laughs> what's out there, Tim. Yeah, I watched just a handful of interviews with uh, Sam Raimi and the cast, you know, where it's just nowadays, it's just so funny. It's like, you just have, they, they do tons of interviews that like may or may not be over Zoom and they just try to cram in as many as possible. But yeah, I was so curious, you know, in trying to make sense of this mystery out of, there's always like, how much is a director allowed to do within the confines of Marvel These and, and Disney where you have, you know, the stories of all these directors leaving projects due to creative differences. But then you have like a Taika Waititi who said all of his, I shouldn't do his ex, how like all of his suggestions, um, you know, they were really into and did and still fell with under the confines. So it's just like always trying to parse that like big mystery of it all. Um, how much 
was Raimi let off? How long was his leash, so to speak? But then also, how much did he... He talks about, you know, like, oh, I watched all the movies. I did all this. I watched the TV show. I loved the Doctor Strange comic book. So, like, good, coming from that place. So, anyway, that was just something I was listening to or listening for when when going through interviews and stuff. So... There was the first where uh, I was curious about, like, you know, when I was trying to parse in my own head, like, how, how, how much of a horror thing is this? And what was his approach, what they were trying to hit? Because it was interesting. You had Scott Derrickson, you know, the sinister filmmaker and all that, who the director of the original Doctor Strange, who said, this is going to be Marvel's first horror movie. And then you had Kevin Feig, the producer, come out after that and say, no, it's not. It's just going to have horror flourishes akin to Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom or whatever. Uh, so then the, but the tone that they were hoping to hit, and I kind of put it this way earlier, which I think they, you tell me if they did a good job at, but Raimi said the, they're shooting for the kind of horror and spookiness you'd find in a Doctor Strange comic which I thought, great. Yes, I would say that that is what they achieved based on the whatever 50 Doctor Strange books I've read. (laughs) So, and I thought the first one did as well. Cool. You know, so. I was curious how he was doing and where he was coming out of uh, with, do you remember what his last film was before this one? Sam Raimi? Yeah. Oh my God. Okay, right. And it seems like he'd rather forget too. It was Oz. The I think it was called Oz the Great Whoa. and Powerful. Really? It was that long ago? Yeah. Man. Which did I haven't seen it, but apparently did not only didn't do well, but was did not do well critically. Yeah. And uh someone kind of brought up like, oh well, like what was it about uh this film that brought you back? Or or no, they asked, did you want to do anything between then and now? And he said, not really. He said he uh, needed time away to get hungry again. And he said to learn about filmmaking, take in some lessons, and in the spirit of Marvel supervillains, do some gardening. Uh, <laughs> but just the guy, it was just kind of crazy and funny hearing from the dude who made, you know, one of our all-time favorites, Evil Dead Trilogy, yep. saying he wanted to learn about filmmaking and take in some lessons, which I think is, you know... Great, as far as that's how everyone's approach should always be with anything and any pursuit in life. You're always learning. Um, but I don't know. It just seemed, just, I don't know. It's just weird coming from his last movie that, I don't know, apparently wasn't very good. Again, I haven't seen it, but it just seemed like an acknowledgement on mm-hmm. his part of all that. Well, I think we're in a time where technology is vastly changing And from a filmmaker point of view, you know, it's like as a director, you're relying on a knowledge base that's broadening, especially in this particular type of film. Yeah. And I think that's you're right. Looking at that from a technological point of view, what CG does, I mean, that that kind of illustrates it all, because like you have we're talking about Danny Elfman, his buddy, Tim Burton, like his earlier films, I think, are some of my favorite movies ever. And then, then you have, as soon as CG became prominent, it just does like hard on the other end of the spectrum yep. as far as how good the movie is. Uh, yeah, man, sandbox doesn't mean you should do anything. <laughs> That's right. 
<laughs> yeah, to answer or at least speculate on your comment about the leash, so to speak, that these filmmakers are given by Disney or Marvel or whoever, I don't think that that's how they operate. I think that it's more a, it's like a writer's room. I think that the directors of these movies, once they come in, all have, I mean, I don't know if they literally sit in a room together, but let's assume that it's something to that effect or some version of that. And they all get together and they are pitching their concepts and their hopes for the direction of their film, but within the context of what the other filmmakers are hoping to do and within the context of the bigger arc that Feige or however you say his name, the Kevin Feige, Kevin Feige, Feige I don't know what it is, how whatever he is envisioning for the thing. So I think that it's much more likely that it's a broadly collaborative process that only runs into trouble when they just can't come to an agreement on the individual film uh you know ideal for the director and how that fits into the broader thing but like i don't think that it's i just don't see it being sort of a we'll let you go until we say you can't go kind of thing it doesn't i I just would be surprised if it had that i don't think it's construct i think it's both stuff going on you know it's there's no hard line is i don't know because you have Figi Feige, I think you could say it like he's the showrunner, it does feel like. Sure. And these are all like the the television directors you get for these different episodes, let's say. Mm-hmm. And you're I, right. And I think they they are open to whatever. I hear them say that. If something it feels true to the characters, whatever, whatever, whatever. Like how Loki got made and pitched was because um God, I forget the creator her name was um but uh the creator come in give this whole pitch with like that look book and everything that mm-hmm. gives that show that super unique theremin you know pseudo 50s futuristic you know fallout right. flavor to it all right yeah uh and then that even extended to how it was shot in a way that was really compelling i thought yeah but that was all that that was a page that was all gotten on board with by like the writers room i think But it's cool because then it shows, no, it doesn't mean it's an impossibility as long as you can get the writer's room to agree. Mm -hmm. But then I do think there is, or I'd be hard not to believe that there is this other side going on that where the corporatism does seep through of a certain amount of safety and that probably does extend to them somehow. And they have to be a certain amount of arbiter in that sense of like, all right, this is a TV show, so I think we can maybe, you know, do a little more than we went, or maybe it's just the pitch was that yeah. strong or whatever. Definitely but, a difference between the movies and the and the TV even, shows. Yeah, WandaVision. I mean, how experimental and crazy is that premise for that, right, right? Because the ROI is a totally different construct, yeah. right? Like a, a feature film ROI construct is so vastly different of how they how they look at that. Right. Well, I kind of said it earlier, but this did not, except for those shots that I mentioned, like Rachel McAdams, the reverse shot, the demon things attacking her, like it was only kind of parsing it out afterwards where I thought, oh, this was a Sam Raimi movie. And of course, the obvious nods of like Bruce Campbell smacking himself. (laughs) 
and him in it at all. But it just like it felt like I I it was only afterwards in theory when I kind of pointed out all those mo- horror moments and giant eyeball monster where I was like, oh yeah, that is pretty Sam Raimi. These demon things, pretty Sam Raimi, because the the guise of it all, it like I couldn't tell you he directed it. To be honest, it felt more like another like filmmaker like makes Marvel movies was like taking these inspiration points from him, let's say, and trying mm. to use that like versus like, a, yes, of course, again, say there's Sam Raimi touches or whatnot. But if you just put this down to me and said, would he have directed it? I'd say definitely not. Interesting. Um, and why, you know, I, I, I said all this from uh, saying I was watching his interviews and he, <laughs> someone asked, uh, this was a phase zero YouTube channel. So maybe a Marvel YouTube channel, I guess hmm. what that alludes to. They asked him, uh, what's your, like, the proudest, like, most Sam Raimi scene where you thought you really got to do your thing here? And he he answered it. Like, he was really trying to, um, you know, be political with his answer, I guess. This was my, maybe projecting, but my read on it. He said, well, I don't really have a sequence like that. I, um, I tried to not make it about me, but make it certainly as exciting as possible be true to the characters and really please the fans. I think, I hope I succeeded, but it's not really about a Raimi thing. Hmm. Interesting. Which I, yeah, I, I, I get, yeah, you do it. He's, he's signed up to make a Marvel movie and right. his, that's where I say may, it feels like the top down orders are like, it's still, you got to be able to watch it back to back with right, an right. Avengers movie. And <laughs> yeah, it's exactly. the same. Yeah. But I really think Loki proves you can, you yeah. can, it uh, should be its own. And that's, that's where, I don't know, and maybe that's, this calls, this is now more what didn't work, where that feels like, yeah, in a big uh, swathy TV show sense, I get the instinct, but I do think it's a more corporatized, safe thing to want there to be a, a, a meshiness, sameness to it all. When again, why I think we're so good about Loki is you build, uh, the filmmaking itself around the character and the idea of the character and every aspect comes from this sort of story or character. It's sort of like the difference between I'll critique like music docs these days where it was like, yeah, I loved and had fun with the Bee Gees documentary, but it didn't take it to the, 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 there was nothing about the filmmaking that felt like a stylistic extension of the BGs, mm. where you have a music doc like the Zappa movie, let's say, which felt like I got a feel for who Frank Zappa was through the filmmaking. Sure, and that's just where, yeah, I don't, I, I don't know, man, if that's in most of these movies for me. That's fair. At all. That's fair. I don't know. I, I think for some people, the cohesion is a positive. That's what I was saying. Yeah, it's, it's. So, you know, you can watch them all and it's not too jarring. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. Was it just me or or did that not sound like John Krasinski at all? Like (laughs) I was I was so thrown off. I thought I was going crazy or maybe I heard hadn't heard him speak in forever. But I just swear that wasn't his voice. I did not. It did not distract me or occur to me at all i felt like it was him i've watched the jack ryan stuff that he did which Uh is more of this serious tone so maybe i was all right 
used to it. This was just. I think if you're coming off an op, uh, you know, an office episode. Yeah, maybe that would be a jarring thing. Okay, that's all how I know him from. So this was just uh, Ryan in his multiverse of madness here, I think. Yeah. <laughs> that doesn't sound anything like him. So confused. Uh, great. Anything else you had? I would just say that, you know, obviously having Bruce Campbell in there um, punching himself repeatedly is... Um, with the the insight of the screening um, and Q&A that I saw of, of Evil Dead 2 and Army of Darkness where he spoke and him specifically saying the reason he didn't want to do more um, Ash versus the Evil Dead was because he can't continue to beat himself up and Sam continues to want him to. <laughs> And then seeing this, I'm like, man, he must have been like, come on, dude. Like, we're like, this is what we're doing still. He's like, I got some Disney money for you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it's, pretty, I just think it's funny. And, you know, it's their, it's their relationship in a nutshell from everything I gathered from that Q&A. Cool. Uh, looping it all together in our horror multiverse, our dismembering horror multiverse here, Tim, to end it on this note, I suppose. Uh, we had Bob Murawski edited this film, who is Sam Raimi's longtime editor, uh, who had first joined him in 1990, working as the assistant editor on Darkman. Oh, nice. Edited Army of Darkness and everything he's done since then. Cool. Uh, but very interesting. Oh, well, so there's the there's there's this kind of something always just fun and noteworthy. I think about that about whether it's Bruce Campbell or Bob Murawski when a filmmaker who's, you know, can be looked at as kind of a collective made all these, you know, early films is then you see that same circus troupe of theirs then giving this Disney check to, to play on that playground. Yeah. And they're all there together. I just think there's something fun about that. But uh, Bob Murawski, he is co-founder of a film release uh, company called Grindhouse Releasing. Hmm. And they've released a lot of uh, films, which a lot of horror films, which may not have had other major remasters and releases otherwise, including uh, Pieces, Cannibal Holocaust, Cannibal Ferrix, and then one that we have dismembered, The Beyond. Hmm. That's cool. So there you go. Bob Murawski, horror distributor, films we've dismembered, tie it all around. There you go. Oh, and um, if anybody's wondering uh, who Charlize Theron is and the uh, post-credits scene or mid-credits scene or whatever, um, her name's Clea. She's, she was this... She married Doctor Strange at some point in the comic books. She's another sorcerer supreme magician from another universe and they they hit it off so there you go we look forward to their continuing adventures and uh maybe a new love prospect for dr strange yep. after closing the book on rachel mcadams we'll see i mean man benedict cumberbatch really lucking out with the love interests here is and isn't correct yes we'll see <laughs> i have a feeling that they're you know I think Charlize Theron is going to be more of a foil than a love interest would be my guess. Got it. Um, you know, to sort of move away from this 
you know, using women characters just as the like default, you know, like like I said earlier, just a, a plot device for the main character to figure their shit out. We'll find out. We'll find I, out. I, yeah, who knows? I get such a kick now out of all the speculation and like for this one, <laughs> every kind of touching up on everything that everyone speculated that didn't come true at all. Right. Uh, great. All right. Well, it was fun uh, delving into this yeah. this multiverse of madness with you, Tim. <laughs> My pleasure. This whole Marvel multiverse <laughs> of madness, I should say. Yeah. God, should I start a podcast of me just talking about Marvel movies like a total dork? There, you'd have to look at the competition. There's a lot, I know. I'd, uh, I watched one I had on this morning, some YouTuber that was like giving the full rundown and reminded me of all these things this morning. Yeah, I'll tell you what though, like I, the vast knowledge that some of these people have is, it's so extensive, so far beyond like my, you know, my experience with Marvel. Like I love it and I've read, a, I don't know, what I would consider a fair amount. But comparatively, I know people who are just like encyclopedic well, about it. Like this show, we don't deem ourselves or claim to be horror experts in yeah. that encyclopedics. And that's part of what the show is, is our journey to see more. Yep. But we all look at it from a uh, filmmaking angle. So totally. always offer that perspective. Great. Well, we like to wind down further here with some recommendations. Do you have one? I do. I do have one. It's Taika Waititi, maybe. It's a HBO Max show called Our Flag Means Death. It I've is heard of it. hilariously good. It's uh, pirates. <laughs> it's, it's pirates. Taika Waititi plays Blackbeard. And um, damn, I forget the name of the guy from... Um, I think he was in... Uh, What's the Condor? Flight of the Concords. Condor. <laughs> Flight of the Concords. I think he was their business manager, the actor. Rice Darby's, yeah. Is that who it is? He plays the main main pirate. Well, he's a wannabe pirate, and he runs into Blackbeard, and Blackbeard and him kind of hit it off, and, and they say, you know, Blackbeard says, I'll teach you how to be a pirate if you teach me how to be a fancy, uh, fancy man. Uh, cool. It's I, hilarious. I was a big Flight of the Concords fan. So I yep. don't know if that means I'd like this, but <laughs> maybe. <laughs> if you like um, what we do in the shadows at all, you'll like oh, this. Yeah. It's very much in that vein. And that was Rice Darby. I said Darby's. Uh, yeah, who played Murray. It's so funny. Yeah, he's great. Everybody's great in it. It's it's extremely queer. Like the whole show is very queer oriented. I love it. So it's a good construct. He's sort of hyper-masculine pirate world. And then everybody's basically gay in some sort right fashion. it's very funny it's yeah it's fun anything that highlights is like actually guys the army's super gay you know anything <laughs> yeah, like yeah shows it's like, that. also we have these constructs of thinking of these eras without queer people and it's like no 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 they you know they exist they've always existed so i like it quite a lot it's great cool i will recommend dead something I watched on Criterion Channel. It was one that I watched in film school, and I get why they showed it to us now. They had a collection of four films by the filmmaker Douglas Sirk, and All That Heaven Allows is maybe his more famous one. That sounds familiar. Fam uh, yeah, director of these did the series of melodramas, that these Technicolor shot melodramas uh, with Rock Hudson in a lot oh, of okay. the leading roles. And... 
there's just something I really love and appreciate about these movies. And this one is maybe the standout one, uh, whether it's the way it's shot, the way it looks. But what really got me was kind of how I brought up before and I was making some recommendations in vain of, I was fascinated with films that are kind of, were carrying the zeitgeist through or being representative of the stereotypical 50s turning into stereotypical 60s and just like films that represented or helped with that transition or whatever. And so this is an example, and these films I think are largely an example of the ones on the more 50s side of things, but then just kind of really interestingly plants the ideas of like, oh, have you ever read Thoreau? Or, you know, like, you know, just kind of, just kind of, challenging the idea of the of the stereotypical suburban you know picket white picket fence american dream being the end all to all there is to aspire to uh yet also showing the beauty within a lot of a lot of all that um and just dialogue super fun it's like musicals without the music is kind of how i almost look at them but uh and situations that are so like you know melodramatic has that bad connotation to it but i i just love that it's like the they what melodramas do they 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 allow for situations that while maybe they feel exaggerated or unrealistic they are made to match how big the emotions actually are you know sure <laughs> like well like would these guys have a gun and end in this big fight or whatever and you're like yeah but that's how much they care it's how much i love you you know it's <laughs> yeah it's great for that so cool. i'll just pick that one out of them all that heaven allows sweet all right well this was a big episode for us so i think we'll just leave you there until uh dr strange three and i'll ask him your thoughts when the <laughs> yeah. time comes so in closing, there's nowhere you can be that isn't where you're meant to be. Thanks for listening. That's right. And we'll see you next time. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>